Why are you here? And what are you doing here? And should you be here? Or should you be elsewhere? And what should you be doing? Should you be doing what you are doing? Or should you be doing something else? On the one hand, some of these questions could be asked about very temporal, uh, relatively meaningless things. You could ask, like, why am I here, meaning why am I sitting in this pew as opposed to that chair over there? Or why am I uh, driving in this car? Or why am I heading in this direction? Why am I at a baseball game as opposed to something else? Or, or whatever, you know, throughout your life you can ask those questions. But there's also the way you can ask that question in the ultimate sense. Why am I actually here? Why does God want me here? And what should I be doing? And on the one hand, I think we can spend a lot of mental energy. We could spend a lot of time uh, questioning and, and, and debating in our minds about, you know, what our purpose is or what we are called to do or where we should be going. I know sometimes when there's a, an opportunity, whether you take a job and leave and move to a new place or you stay where you are or you go to this school as opposed to that school or, you know, there's all of this mental energy that can go into it and trying to think of wh where does God want me to go? Where is God calling me? And I know a lot of people, they try so hard, and it's very difficult sometimes to think, well, what is God telling me to do? And, and our theme for this year is the, the idea of being sent. We are sent, and we are sent with a purpose. And one of the points that I've tried to make a number of times throughout the year is, I don't know, I don't know that when you are faced with something like that, two options in front of you. I could either go this way or this way. I don't know that there always is a clear, this is God's choice and this is not. Maybe sometimes there is. Maybe it's like, well, if I go this way, I can choose greed and lust. And if I choose this way, I can choose righteousness and holiness. Okay, well, that's good. But, uh, but sometimes you can look at those choices and it's like, okay, both places I can serve God, and both places I can, I can uh, make an impact in the world, and I can make an impact with a church, and, and you're trying to think, like, so which one should I choose? And if that's the choice, I would say, I kind of think God can use you wherever you are. I kind of think that maybe you don't have to spend so much time thinking, where does God want me to be? Because God could probably have a purpose for you, no matter where you are. In fact, I think that's a really healthy mindset to develop, even if you don't have one of those choices ahead of you. Even if you haven't made one of those types of life-altering big choices in a long time. Maybe you're just living your life. Live your life with the realization that you're here because God wants you here and he has a mission for you here. Live here as though you were sent here. Live at your job as though you were sent to that job. Live next to your neighbor as though you were sent next to your neighbor. Live among your family as though you were sent right there to be with that family. Because God's not going to look at you and think, oh no, he took that job, I can't use him anymore. I, I think God can still find a purpose for you. I think God still has a calling for you. And I don't think we're going to thwart God's plans because we couldn't discern everything 100% perfectly right. Uh, maybe sometimes you just act and trust and see where you end up and serve Christ faithfully the whole journey. So what we're going to do starting today is we're going to begin a series of lessons. The idea of these lessons are looking at people who have been sent. And we're going to look at people who some of them, yeah, they may have a very obvious sending. Like they were taken from one place and told, go over there and do this. Like there are very obvious calls and sins in the Bible. But then there are also people who just find it falling into their lap, a purpose or a vocation or a calling, and they're called to act upon it. 
And so we're going to walk through the story of the Bible over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to look at individuals who were sent. Some of them traveled for that sending, and some of them didn't. Some of them were just created right in one spot, and were sent right there. And that's who we're going to start with. Uh, That's Adam and Eve. They were sent to a garden. And they were sent there with a purpose and with a vocation. The Bible begins with a story of sending. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we're going to see the story begins. Prior to, like, God saying, let there be light, uh, there's already stuff. And it's a big mess. Uh, We're told that the waters were, like, the the earth was dark and void, and there was uh, darkness over the face of the deep, and the Holy Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You get this dark, uh, chaotic mess where the world is uh, is kind of, uh, it's it's formless and void, and we don't really even know exactly what those words mean. It just kind of seems like the world was wild. The world was was uh, an unpredictable and chaotic place. And then what you're going to see is step by step throughout this first chapter of our Bible, God looks at the world and he gives order and he gives purpose. He gives divine intention to the different parts of it. And and we often think of this as the creation week, and there's a good reason to think of it that way. But one thing that's interesting is how little it actually talks about God creating during this week. So like, for example, the first thing uh, God says is let there be light. And in our, you know, highly advanced scientific minds, we think of light as uh, electromagnetic radiation and photons. And honestly, I don't know a lot about science, so I'm just saying those types of words because I think that has something to do with light. I think refraction's in there somewhere. But, uh, but we think of light as like as a substance. But that's not really the way ancient people thought about light. Uh, they didn't think of light as like a physical thing that God made. It's more just God said, let there be light. Then the lights turned on. And then day two, what God does is he takes the water that's already there. The, the water was there before we even said day one. And he takes it and he lifts some of it up so that there's water up there and water down here. And in that, he creates this room in the middle that he calls the heavens. And so, you know, we know Genesis uh, chapter one and verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what day he created the heavens? It was day two because he makes this expanse and he calls it, that's the heavens. And then on the third day, he takes some of the water and he moves it over into one spot so that the land that's underneath it, it appears. And so dry land appears. Notice in day two, and day, like there's nothing that it says God actually created. He just moved water around. But by doing so, the heavens appeared. And then that dry land that appeared after he moved the waters, it says, and he called that earth. So day three is when he makes the earth. So he makes light and the heavens and the earth in the first three days. And you know what he does in the next three days? He fills that with stuff, with ruling bodies. Uh, So for day four, he creates lights, plural. And he says, let there be lights in the heavens. So he's created the heavens. He's already said, let there be light. Now there's going to be lights in the heavens. He does not use the word sun and moon, by the way. He says a greater light and a lesser light. And then he says there's stars. And so God orders the lights. And he says there's purpose to these lights. They are sent there with for a purpose. They are to regulate times and seasons and, and hours and days. And, and they are to be uh, for, uh, for on this earth to be able to give light and to give dark and to give order to that process of light and dark. And, and so that, that's what they're for. And they're called to, to rule in that way. And then you remember that day two, he made the heavens. 
Well, now he's going to fill the heavens and the seas in day five. Uh, he's going to put the fish in the sea and the birds in the heavens. And then remember on day three, he made the earth. Well, now he's going to fill the earth, and he fills it with all of these creeping animals that are on the earth. And so you go through, it's like day one, day two, day three is light, heavens, earth. Day four, five, and six are lights above, uh, fish and birds, and then, and then the land animals. And you would think, okay, well, he did it. That's, that's the end of it. One of the things that's fascinating about Genesis 1 is the structure of it, how intentional it is every step of the way to use repeating words and phrases and, you know, and God called and God said and God created and all of those are used. And then they each end in evening and morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second day, evening and morning, the third day. And then you also have after each one, and God said that it was good. And God said that it was good. And God said that it was good. And so one thing that's fascinating about that use of the word good is that even before God created people, he looked at the world and thought, that's good, that's good, that's good. Apparently, even if we weren't here, I think God would like this creation. I think the creation would be good. And, and so he creates it, and the way the structure the, uh, of the story has been told, you would expect once he finishes filling the earth in day six, then it moves on to day seven. But something happens right there in the middle. There is this conversation that God has where he says, let us make man in our image. He hasn't said anything like that so far. It's like day six expands and you get an addition to the day and you come to find out, well, what is this addition going to be? And God wants to make one other thing. And it wants, it's supposed to be something in, in his own image and it's supposed to be something in his likeness and it's supposed to be something that's, that imitates him in some ways. Look at Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God made man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So being created in the image of God is something that male and female share, and with that description of being in God's image, they're supposed to do something godlike. God is the ultimate and the supreme ruler. And yet God doesn't want to keep all rule for himself. He creates his image bearers to share in his rule. And he says, now I want you to rule this world that I made. So it's like he looks at it and he says, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. Everything is in harmony now. It's no longer just the chaotic dark waters. Now there's actual light and there's purpose and the light comes and the light goes and you call that day and you call that night and there's a land and there's, it's all filled with amazing teeming life and all of that stuff. And now he puts his image in there to rule it all. And he says, I want you to be the rulers. Now, um, that requires something of us by the way, if we're going to be rulers. Um, when you read through, like, the kings of Israel, you come to find out that there are some good rulers, kind of-ish, a little, <laughs> not very many, uh, and a lot of bad rulers. That means there's a way to rule well and the way to rule poorly. And one of the ways to know whether or not you're ruling well or ruling poorly is look at what you're ruling. And if it's all like, if you're thriving, but what you're ruling is completely destroyed and is being abused and taken advantage of and is impoverished and all of that, then you're probably doing a bad job ruling it. One of the ways that we can tell whether or not we're doing this vocation well 
we're supposed to rule the animals in the earth, kind of take a look at the animals in the earth and see how we're doing. Uh, like there, there's ways to tell whether or not we're doing this right or not, and whether we're, we're ruling well. But God has a purpose for humanity, and taking care of the earth is part of our original intended purpose. We were sent to do that. That's part of our job. But then the story continues. Uh, God says in verse 28, or the text says in verse 28, God blessed them. He blessed his image bearers, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so it appears that there's more vocation than just ruling well, because it's a big job for maybe like two people to rule all of the cosmos. And so what they're told to do is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. You know, pretty soon we're going to be introduced to a garden that's on this earth that we call the Garden of Eden. And you would think, okay, you're supposed to live in the Garden of Eden, right? Well, well, I wonder if their job is actually to multiply and fill the earth, maybe they weren't supposed to stay in Eden forever. And notice that next phrase that says, and subdue it. Maybe there were parts of the world that weren't quite like Eden. And as we spread throughout the world, ruling well, well and, and caring for this world, humanity was supposed to expand Eden, was to take the blessing of Eden and, and subdue the rest of the world in such a way that the rest of the world became fruitful like Eden and beautiful and blissful like Eden. And so as you read through this text, you're starting to realize God created humans in his image, but he did not create us just to walk around and think about how great we are or just to sit in hammocks all day by a river. There actually was a job and a purpose for why he created us. Human beings were created with responsibilities that we were supposed to act upon. Uh, as the story kind of zooms in closer in the next chapter, you see that the creation of the Garden of Eden. In uh, chapter 2 and verse 5, the text says, Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Well, that's interesting. It's like the earth is described as without having uh, vegetation because there isn't rain and there's no man to cultivate it. It's like God wants to create a man to work on the ground, to do some stuff. And so he's going to create a garden. Verse 6 says, But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being, and God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and he placed the man whom he had formed. So the whole earth was not Eden. There was a place in the east that was Eden, and he created man, and then he put the man there, and the man has some responsibilities in Eden. Um, if you look down at verse 15, it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So Adam is created with responsibilities. In Eden, he has a vocation, a purpose, a calling. He was sent to Eden to take care of that place. And he's also supposed to multiply and fill the earth and to subdue the parts that aren't like Eden, to subdue the rest of it so that the whole earth becomes this glorious place. And that's, that's God's job to rule, but he created us to share in that rule with him. And as he looks at Adam, he says, he shouldn't be doing this alone, especially if he's going to like multiply and fill the earth. And so he ends up creating a helper, for Adam, 
so that together they can unite with one another. And the fascinating thing about this helper that he creates, he does not create her from the dust of the ground. He creates her from Adam so that there's harmony between man and woman. And, and the, very, the very essence of woman was taken from man in the same way that the very essence of man, every man since then, is taken from a woman. It's like, like every man has come from a woman, but the first woman came from a man. And in that, you have the, the whole circle is completed in harmony between man and woman. And so God creates this beautiful garden. He creates this incredible harmonious world. And he puts human beings there to care for it and to take it, to, to take care of it, to, to have a job and a calling and a responsibility. And if you just start listing some of the things that they're supposed to do, I think you can boil them down to a couple of things. Number one, rule well. Number two, be good gardeners. Like, actually take care of the ground and the earth. And number three is uh, to, to produce, to procreate, to have children, and to, to spread and fill the whole earth. And so those are the jobs that mankind was given when God originally created this world. And the overriding principle that unites them all is that they're going to do this under the guide and under the leadership and in a harmonious relationship with the God who created them. Keep that relationship secure and you have meaning and eternal value and purpose to all of these things. And I mean that when I say eternal because God puts a tree in there that's called the tree of life. And if you eat from that tree, this is a relationship that can last forever. But then there's that other tree um, in the garden and you think, of all of the things to create, why create this other tree? You know? Uh, and th I think that's a question you're supposed to have as you read through the text. I think sometimes the Bible, in fact, I'm, I'm quite confident of this, the Bible tells you things and gives no explanation of why it was done. And one of the reasons for that, there may be two reasons, uh, one of them might be so that as the Bible is read in community, People can discuss and meditate and grow and talk about these things. And, and, and that's a way of building a community around the text. As people love the text, they read the text, they don't understand the text, they talk to each other about the text, and they grow in their communication and they grow in their meditation on the things of God. I think that that's, that's a very wise practice to not give a rigid explanation of everything. It's the same reason I think the Bible is told in story form. Like if God only cared about us obeying certain laws, just make the Bible a list. It's just, it's just it'll save us a lot of time. Do this stuff, don't do this stuff, period. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the end of the Bible. Uh, but God does not write the Bible like that at all. Uh, the Bible is very much this, like, cosmic, beautiful story of, of the rise and the fall of mankind and the ultimate victory of God over uh, the sin that was thwarting his creation. And, like, you have all of that going on. Why is it so complex? Well, I think so that people could spend a lifetime in digesting it, communicating it, uh, meditating on it, thinking about it, talking about it, growing into it and becoming part of that story themselves as we live it out. But here we have this other tree and they're told, don't eat from that tree. And when we talk about like the, what they were supposed to do in the garden, that's usually the one we focus on. Don't eat from that tree, that's your only law. Well, not exactly, there were some other things. There were positive responsibilities also, but there was that negative rule, don't eat from that tree. And you think, it would make sense to eat from a tree, right? Like when I'm, when I'm using my rational mind and trying to think of what a better rule would be, 
How about don't kill Eve? You know, like that would be a good rule if you're going to give one. Um, how about don't chop down the tree? You know, maybe, maybe make that it. But it's a tree that produces fruit and it's really good looking. And what are you supposed to do with fruit if not eat it? It's like you're not doing anything evil by eating a fruit. You're actually doing what a fruit was intended to do and what you're intended to do. And by every rational measure I could possibly imagine, it makes sense to do this and no harm comes from doing this. And maybe that's the second reason um, for the tree being there. In the one hand, it, you know, we can, we can discuss and, and have community and all that stuff. But another really important reason is because there are going to be times in this life happens a lot, and it happens from culture to culture, where there are things that God has said that when I look at them, I think, come on, what's the harm in that? Like, it makes sense that we should be able to do that. No one's harmed by it. It would make evangelism easier. Like, there are things that I, it's like, if I were writing the Bible, I would have written that a little bit differently. Um, but I think perhaps, perhaps the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there to remind us that we don't get to write the Bible, that we don't get to make the rules, and that sometimes, even if we don't understand things, we have to admit that we don't understand things, and God does. It's a way of reminding us that God is in charge even when we are not, and it's a way of calling us to live in such a way that says, I'm not always going to act upon my own wisdom, because ultimately that's what the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil represents. You have the wisdom of God, which is given to you in your vocation in this beautiful world, and then you have this tree that says, or you could come up with your own wisdom. You can do wisdom your own way. You can have your eyes open so that you will now be like God. You can become your own God. You can become the ultimate source of good and evil in your own life, and you don't need this other God to do it for you. That's kind of like what the serpent said, actually. That's, that's the rationality that the serpent uses to get Eve and Adam to then partake of that fruit and to then, without even knowing it, set this beautiful, harmonious world that they were in charge of ruling back into utter chaos. You read the story, and when you get to chapter 3, after they do eat from it, there are some consequences that happen that I don't think any of them had any clue was going to happen. Like... Like, when you're thinking, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen from eating a fruit? My first thought isn't, I'll realize I'm naked. Uh, like, that's, that kind of seems out of left field a little bit. Like, how does eating the fruit open your eyes to that fact? Those aren't, those aren't obviously connected in any sort of way. Um, but I think that's the point. Sometimes, when your eyes are open to sin, you begin to see unexpected and unpredicted consequences. So the first thing that happens is shame at the fact that they are now naked, and they try to solve that for themselves, and they do a poor job of it. They're unable to cover themselves up the proper way. The second unexpected consequence is now when God, who returns to the garden to find them, when he arrives, out of fear they hide from the one who created them. Out of fear the one, they hide from the one who shared their, his rule with them. The one who created them in his image. Like his image bearers are hiding from the one the image is based on. Fear of God in wanting to separate and be farther from him is an unexpected consequence of sin. And I think that's one perhaps we experience more, more clearly than the others. It's like there are times when 
there's so much disappointment in our sin or perhaps even fear because of our sin that rather than reaching out and running to God in forgiveness, I kind of want to just quietly, slowly drift away and I wish he'd let me. It's like, I don't want to go to prayer tonight because I'm going to have to talk about what happened today and I don't want to do that. It's like sin can make us want to avoid God. It's like, it's like anything else. If you disappoint someone, and you know they're going to call you and talk to you about it. You're not really anxious about that phone call. It's like sometimes you'd rather avoid it and just do the easy thing and just kind of hit silent or something like that. And I think the same can happen in our relationship with God. Sin could make it to where we don't really want to hear from him anymore. What they do is they try to hide from him. A third consequence of the sin is when God does start talking to them. Remember how they were like perfectly made for each other. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll have a helper for him. So like Adam should have had this wonderful aid in Eve. And Eve actually came from the very rib of Adam. And they both were like codependent upon one another. And immediately what happens is when Adam is addressed, he not only turns against God, but he turns against Eve. And relationships are then broken and fractured. And you end up seeing the harmonious unity that we should have had with one another becomes unraveled as our relationship to the world becomes unraveled, as our relationship to God starts to become unraveled. And all of this is happening, and it doesn't end here. Just keep reading the story, and it's not very long before Cain kills Abel. And death is now a part of this world, and death results from these fractured relationships. And that spirals as the story continues to get to the point of, of guys like Lamech. And you get to the point of the flood, where like that's all you see in God's good world. People are ruling it horribly, and turning against one another, and killing one another. And they are not being the rulers and the image bearers of God that he called us to be. And this is the story of the Bible that stems from the beautiful, peaceful creation in the garden. It's like everything goes out of control. In fact, when you look at the consequences of these sins, there's a couple of them that are, uh, are spoken by God. One of them deals with that first vocation of taking care of the garden, like cultivating the ground and all of that stuff. What happens to the land because of the sin? Cursed is the ground because of you. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So Adam still has his responsibility in his job, but all of a sudden sin made it so much harder to actually do. And then what happened to you know, reproducing and multiplying and filling the earth? Well, Eve is told, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. And what you see is she still has the same, the same vocation, but all of a sudden sin has made that vocation so much harder than it previously was. The, the jobs didn't change, but the jobs all of a sudden became far more difficult to do. And I think, surely we can understand that also. Um, I think it's a lot easier to evangelize when a church has a good reputation than a reputation that's been soured and stained by sin. Uh, I, I know of churches where some of the leaders have gotten involved in very public immorality, and then all of a sudden when people look at that church, they don't see the holiness of Christ, they see public immorality. And guess who wants to sign their name up with that? Virtually no one. It's like sin can make our purpose and our job so much harder than it otherwise would be, and you see that with Adam and Eve right here. And that can be the type of thing that causes us to lose hope. 
It can be the type of thing that frustrates our purposes, and we think, well, you know, I felt like I was sent here with a purpose, but I've ruined my purpose. I think Adam and Eve surely could have felt that way. But there's another curse that's mentioned, and it's actually a curse to the serpent. And we haven't talked a lot about the serpent. But in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14, this is what God says to the serpent who spoke to Eve, who told her, no, you could be like God. You don't have to listen to him. You can become your own God. You don't need him if you know right and wrong for yourself, if you can make these decisions on your own. And she listened, and she heard, and we're told in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any and all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So we come to find out that there's going to be a long battle that takes place between the seed of this woman and the seed of the serpent. And there's going to be constant friction. And on the one hand, you can see that like when you go for a hike and you see a rattlesnake, you kind of want to avoid the thing, right? Uh, there's, there's, there's friction there in that relationship. But I believe in a grander way, this becomes the story of humanity itself. Satan actually did harm in God's world and harm to humanity. Our heel has been bruised, but Satan will not have the ultimate victory. The serpent will not win the day as his head will be crushed. Um, We can have hope for the future because sin didn't destroy God's plans. It might have made our purpose harder. It might have made our calling a little more difficult. It might have made our heel hurt. But ultimately, there's a victory. And that victory is because, not necessarily we are so good at fulfilling our purpose, but because there's one particular seed of woman who has the ability and who has, through the death and resurrection on the cross, destroyed the head of Satan. He has rendered powerless him who has the power of death. That is the devil, to quote the Hebrew writers. Jesus, as the ultimate seed of woman, shows us how to fulfill the vocation of God perfectly. So Adam and Eve had a vocation. They kind of messed it up. They messed it up big time. But their vocations remained. It became more difficult, but they could still continue to carry out. We live in a world where our vocation remains. Our purpose and our calling is still all around us. We have to live it out. It's difficult to do in a world full of sin, but we know that there's ultimate victory in Christ. So as we continue this series of lessons, we'll see how the story grows. We'll see the role that other people fit into it along the way, and hopefully we'll see the role that we play in it as well as we move through the story of the Bible, looking at who God has sent and why they were sent there. But as we conclude, I want us to remember that you were sent right here, right now, to be exactly where you are to make some decisions. What are you going to do in your walk with God? What are you going to do with your life? If there's anyone here who makes, wants to make the choice today to give your life over to Christ, to live for him from this point forward, to fulfill the greatest purpose and calling you could have in this world, please do so. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life and have your sins washed away in baptism this morning. Or if you have any other needs, uh, we have some elders who will meet uh, in the library in the back you can go talk to, or you can come ask for the prayers of the church here on the front row uh, if you want to talk about uh, maybe sins in your life or or helping uh, overcome some of those things. But if you have a need, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.